Ahead of today's episode, I just wanted to share a quick warning. Through the course of our discussion with Dr. Derek Parr and Dr. Osama Salib, we will be discussing treatment options, side effects, and advanced stage melanoma cancer, a topic which may be a bit upsetting for some listeners. If you are affected by anything you hear on today's recording, please don't be afraid to reach out to us at mariekeating.ie. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Marie Keating Foundation Talks Cancer podcast. Talking about cancer isn't easy, but the Marie Keating Foundation's mission is to make cancer less frightening by enlightening, and opening up conversations is a great way to do just that. Welcome back, everybody. It's great to have you back here to listen to our Talking Melanoma podcast. Last week, you would have heard about the first steps with consultant dermatologist, Dr. Patrick Ormond. And you're tuning in today to hear more about the treatment plan with Professor Derek Parr and Dr. Osama Salib. I would like to personally introduce Dr. Osama Salib, who I have worked with in the past, and he's a great friend of the Marie Keating Foundation too. Dr. Osama Salib is a consultant radiation oncologist at the St. Luke's Radiation Oncology Network. I know he's a very affable and highly regarded consultant within his field. I know the patients love him. I'd like to welcome Bernie Carter here today as well, our Assistant Director of Nursing. And I know Bernie will actually tell us more about that because Bernie has met patients who you have looked after, Osama. I suppose the first thing I'd like to ask you, Osama, is what is a radiation oncologist and what do you do and when do patients meet you? Once you are diagnosed with cancer, a patient goes through a journey. And at that journey, you will meet a surgical oncologist, you meet a medical oncologist, and a radiation oncologist, which is cancer specialist, who will treat patients with radiotherapy. And that's my territory, is actually treating cancer patients with radiation. That's a radiation oncologist. Our podcast includes a consultant dermatologist, clinical nurse specialist, medical oncologist, as you said, you're all part of a multidisciplinary team. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Everything, Helen, in the last decade is is probably done via MDTs. The the era is gone uh, that you can actually treat single-handed. Everything is discussed at an MDT. Well, that's a very welcome change, isn't it, Osama? Yeah. The definition of the MDT is a multidisciplinary team meeting. That it's a group of medical specialists between surgeons, medical oncologists radiation oncologists, pathologists, geologists, clinical nurse specialists, uh, all younger generation of doctors. It's, it's a group meeting to, to minute what we are doing and transform it to a kind of a format uh, to follow. And this is for, for really for patients' management and, and protection. Yeah, and I think that's so reassuring for everybody to hear, isn't it? And when do patients see you specifically then, Osama? Uh, they see me if a decision is made about radiation, Helen. And we really don't uh, treat too many patients with radiation. Radiotherapy is really not needed for most uh, patients of malignant melanoma. Do you mind if I ask you there then, Sama? Would you mainly then see patients with, would it be a very early stage melanoma? No, it's the other way around, Bernie. Is it? Okay. Yeah. I mean, essentially, when melanoma is diagnosed, the, the first thing is asked is, does the patient need more surgery? Uh, surgery is really the single 
most important treatment for malignant melanoma. And sometimes a dermatologist will remove the lesion with clear margins, but you still go and see a dermatologist to do a wider resection, wider excision, to take wider margins, which can include a skin graft at times. So that's really the hallmark of malignant melanoma is surgery. Okay, that's very interesting. And, and how does the whole planning then take place around how much radiation is required for the later stage uh, melanomas, Asama? Like, uh, what has to, what's involved there? Basically, you can give radical radiation if the area is surgically not resectable, you know, in the head and neck, kind of uh, around the sinuses or the nose, or you can get melanoma in the vulva or vagina, not surgically resectable, or you get melanoma in the anorectal area, which is not surgically resectable, or you get melanoma in the eye, in the uvea, uvea or conduct, conductive. But there are certain sites that, you know, surgically may not be feasible. Uh, and hence, primary radiation is used. And I have to say it's not used often. These are rare locations. So that's the first thing is actually radical radiation, which is aiming to eradicate the tumor. The second uh, purpose of radiation is adjuvant, add-on, that you had radical surgery. Suppose you had the glands dissected and there are risk factors in the lymph glands. Suppose you have groin lymph node dissection or neck lymph node dissection or axillary lymph node dissection. And there are risk factors in the report depending on the number of positive lymph nodes involved or the size of lymph nodes involved or any spread outside the nodes or the, sec or the resection margins of the nodal disease or recent recurrence after having had surgery for nodal disease before. So you can actually give radiation in an adjuvant way, add on that you are clear, but you need an extra layer of protection uh, to ensure that the risk of cancer returning is kept to a minimal. What I usually say to people that you are clear, uh, the surgeon have done a very good job, but there are risk factors in the report that you do require a course of precautionary radiation to reduce, not to eliminate the risk to zero, but to reduce the, the risk of cancer recurring in this area. And that's what we mean by adjuvant. And how I phrase it to people, I always say an in insurance policy, that you are clear, you may be clear for the rest of your life, but you are at risk of recurrence. And the benefit of the radiation is to bring down that risk of recurrence. I like how you explain adjuvant, Osama, because not everybody understands adjuvant. You know, the add-on is lovely. And Osama, for people that don't really know what is radiation, would you mind telling us, just because you've explained adjuvant so well, and it's lovely, and not everybody understands radiation. Of course, if they've never had it, they don't know what it is, like and what's happening when they're receiving radiation or radi radiotherapy. Radiation, by definition, uh, Bernie, is really high-energy X-rays. And what I say to the public is, really, you will be lying nice and comfortable on a narrow couch. Uh, the room is, you know, a big open room. There is nothing closed on the patient, nothing claustrophobic. There is no tunnels. There is no gadgets. There is no donuts. There is nothing closed on, the, on them. And all what they will see is the heads of the machine, same as chandeliers. Chandeliers at the ceiling moving around, lights moving around, 
and it's really light shining from the ceiling, moving in different directions, focusing on the area we need to treat. That is the radiation. And it's the same as getting an X-ray done. The only difference, Bernie, it's a longer version of an X-ray. We all had X-rays. When you have chest X-ray, you're actually standing in front of, of a machine, and then the technician will press a button, and then the X-ray is done, and they tell you that's fine, you can dress up again. You see, you hear nothing. Therapeutic radiation is similar to diagnostic X-ray. Uh, the only difference, it's a longer version of an X-ray that when you press a button, the radiation goes on for a number of minutes. And that's done in what we call it sessions. And the session could be three, could be four, could be five, could be six minutes in the conventional radiation. And it can be longer in the more uh, novel types of radiation, what we call it stereotactic radiotherapy. That's nice to explain maybe the different types of radiation, like the stereotactic. That's that's nice to, because again, these are words people wouldn't know. Yeah, external beam radiation is similar to an X-ray. It is an X-ray. It's just high energy X-rays coming from a source outside, but it's same principle that you see, you hear, you feel nothing. The difference between conventional radiation and the stereotactic radiation is, I always say this to people, Bernie, Suppose you are uh, on the beach or you are on a bridge and you are throwing a stone on a river or throwing a stone in the sea. The stone is the radiation and the target is the water. So the maximum impact the stone would have is when it touches the target, which is the water or the tumor. And that's when the stone will have maximum impact. That's when the radiation will have its maximum effect. And that's when you leave most of the energy, it's actually where the stone or the radiation is hitting the target, which is the water or the tumor. That's lovely how you explain that. It makes it very clear. Thank you. But at the stone or the radiation hitting the target or hitting the water, what do you see if you throw stone in the water? You see rebel effect. Rebel effect in the water. In radiation terms, that's low dose radiation scattered outside the target area. So the, the target area will get the high-dose radiation. But with the way the beams are angled and coming from different directions, the radiation is traveling into normal tissues. So there is rebel effect. There is low-dose radiation outside in the normal organs. And that's the rebel effect the stone would have when it touches the water. The difference between conventional radiation and the stereotactic radiotherapy is the amount of scattered radiation or rebel effect is kept very tight around the target. So the rebel effect around the tumor is kept to a minimum. So there is less radiation to the normal organs and normal structures outside. There is more in medical terms sparing of normal organs and therefore you can focus on your target which is the cancer that's what you need to kill, that's what you need to get rid of, and you can actually dump more dose of radiation there because this is what you need to get rid of. And that's a differential between the stereotactic and the conventional is more sparing of normal organs with the stereotactic radiotherapy. That's great. And Osama, does that mean then less side effects with the stereotactic if there's less ripple? In theory, yes. But it's still, I mean, there is, there is misunderstanding and misconcept it's called stereotactic body surgery, SRS or SRS, stereotactic radiosurgery. 
So with SRS, stereotactic radiosurgery, there is no surgery. There is no knives. But the after effects of the radiation can mimic a knife without physically having to go to theater and uh, having to undergo surgery and the risk involved with it. But, you know, radiation doesn't come, it's not naive. It doesn't come with risk of side effects. And that's actually concept of error in, in, in the public understanding that it's walk in the park. You know, it, it can cause some side effects if it's not used correctly. What kind of side effects would you see then? It depends It depends on the area we treat, uh, Bernie. I mean, stereotactic radiation and the concept of melanoma. That's the topic we are talking about. Uh, radiation is used widely in, in, to treat symptom, symptoms of melanoma. And that's really in the metastatic setup to treat brain metastasis, brain secondaries, to treat spinal metastasis, spinal secondaries, to treat lymph node masses, to treat lung secondaries from the melanoma. So you can treat what you call metastatic disease or secondary disease of the melanoma. Brain is a huge area in malignant melanoma. Who explains the side effects to the patients? You know, in advance, I gather it's all done before treatment. The explanation, which is part of the consent for treatment, is done primarily by the radiation oncologist or the doctor uh, doing the consent, also done by the clinical nurse managers, also done by the radiation therapy staff. So it's really triple consenting. There is only one piece of paper signed, and that's with the doctor. But, but you know, the, the nursing staff will explain uh, the merits, rationale of treatment, the physicalities of it, and the side effects. Also, the radiation therapy staff will discuss the same. But the actual consent, the legal document, is signed by a doctor. And would treatment ever be stopped because of side effects? Yes. The other uh, side effect of of external beam, whole beam radiation is actually a cognitive impairment. And that happens, uh, and that's really the main edge of stereotactic. Uh, That happens in the older age group burning. If you are 30 or 40 or 50 and you get whole brain radiation, you will tolerate it reasonably well. But if you are, you know, 60 or 70 or 80, you will not tolerate it just as well. And that's nature. As we all uh, get older, we all become forgetful, and that's part of life. I mean, sometimes I park my car in the car park in the hospital at half six in the morning and leaving in the evening, and I don't know where I left my car. So that's that's sign of old aging, but, but radiation can accelerate that, uh, cognitive impairment. So these are the side effects of conventional radiation. The edge of the stereotactic is actually are sparing the normal brain. Yeah, and it's a price to pay, isn't it, Osama? It's explained, yeah. And that's what I meant by treating the tumors precisely with very little rebel effect outside, very little scattered radiation outside, and therefore you are able to uh, deliver higher dose to the target area or to the tumor with significant sparing of the normal tissue outside and significant sparing all of these kind of you know sensitive areas. Can I ask generally just around uh, radiation treatments, you know, like chemotherapies and other treatments might be the patient comes in every few weeks and the difference maybe with radiation, it would be every day after day after day, as opposed to every three weeks. Uh, I'd love you to explain the reasoning around that. That's a good point. There are different protocols, Bernie. Uh, The treatment can be delivered daily, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, for anything up to five or six or seven weeks. 
or you can deliver daily treatment. That's called conventional. And the conventional is really two units per day. That's based on clinical trials and the studies from the early 1990s, over, you know, 120 years ago, when the radiation or x-rays were discovered by Marie Curie. And then more studies were done. Can we deliver more than the two gray per day and finish quickly? And that has been done. What they call it hypofractionation, that you, you can actually increase the amount of radiation you deliver per day and you accelerate the treatment to finish quicker. So you can finish the treatment in one week or in two weeks. Isn't that great for people that might have to travel from the four corners of Ireland? Yes, that's called hypofractionation. And the stereotactic is hypofractionated. Hypo means that you are actually delivering a high dose per fraction. And sometimes when you deliver high dose per fraction, Bernie, there is a small amount of radiation outside your target area. That's the rebel effect. So sometimes you need to allow a bit of time between the fractions to allow the repair of this damage caused outside the target area to, to heal. Something called the repair phenomena in radiation to give you a rest, to give you a break. And studies uh, suggested that you can treat patients, say, once a week by four weeks, or you can treat twice a week for three or four weeks. Even the hypofractionated protocol may not be every day. It could be twice a week. And that's all based on the repair. And what I say to the public, and that's the best example for it, it's actually like a boxing match. Not too many people on Ireland will be watching boxing. But if you look at two boxers, you fight for 10 rounds and every round is three minutes. Well, not if you're Katie Taylor. You knock them out after the verse. <laughs> so about Katie now. Katie will fight for three minutes. And that's the amount of radiation given. And then after the three minutes, Katie will take a break. She will go to the side of the ring. They will give her lollipops, ice packs, repair any damage caused during the three minutes. Katie will get a bit of energy and go back and fight again for three minutes. It's round two. That's a fraction two of radiation. Then Katie will take a break for three minutes, get a bit of water. If there is any wounds, it will be, you know, propped up and go back to the ring to fight for three minutes. And that's done in rounds. So Katie will fight for 10 rounds, but not 10 continuous rounds. Katie takes a break. And that's also the whole mark of radiation. You take a break between treatments to allow, and that's very important, to allow repair of the normal tissues outside the area you are targeting. That's good to know. That's sparing, and that's a buzzword of, of radiation, Bernie, repair of damage or a spare of normal organs outside the area we treat. Right, yeah. And patients know that in advance, you know, that they'll have the breaks, yeah. Absolutely. Just remember that stone hitting the water and the rebel effect, that's number one. And then remember Katie Taylor fighting 10 rounds, but she's not fighting for continuous half an hour. She takes the breaks. We won't tell Katie you said she'd be there for 10 rounds. <laughs> um, Osama, that's, that whole concept um, and explanation of radiotherapy has been so so real and, and, and actually easy to understand. Um, you've explained it really well. I suppose what we see a lot, uh, Osama, though, is, you know, we, we do see patients um, in pain. And I know that radiotherapy can be hugely um, important in terms of pain control. 
you said at the beginning that you you generally see patients kind of with with advanced melanoma and maybe even towards the end of life. So for pain control, Osama, do you have an impact there? Absolutely. I mean, our role as radiation oncologists in melanoma is really 90% in symptoms control. The new surgical techniques took over. The massive improvement in medical oncology is between immunotherapy and targeted therapy and biological agents and checkpoint inhibitors. It's a minefield. So that has all replaced radiation. Our role is primarily in symptoms control, Helen and Bernie. You mentioned pain. And I'll touch on this bit a little bit more. Pain is coming from primarily bone secondaries. You have a segment damaged of the bone, whether it can be in the neck, can be in the spine, can be in the arm, can be in the hips. And what is what is bone secondary? And why do you have the pain? And what do we do for the pain? A bone of all of us, if you take x-ray, the bone is is, is quite white, it's strong. I mean, even if you eat a chicken, the bone is cement, it's calcium. So with the process of cancer, that calcium is eaten away from the bone. The calcium would escape into the blood and the bone is fragile and mushed. And that's why patients are at risk of fractures. And that's why they have pain. So the benefit of radiation, uh, number one, uh, you know, I mean, people have to be scanned, measured up. That's the planning or the scanning, or the simulation, or the CT planning, or the same thing, that you have scans to the area we need to treat to pick some measurements. And now in the last decade, we really outlined that area. We would want to treat big fields. You map out the gross area. You can see the tumor. Suppose it's in the hip. You outline it. You add safety margins outside, and then it goes into planning. And most of these plans now is done 3D conformal. The days are gone. That we treat with 2D plan and you include big volume of tissue. The whole idea at the moment is to focus on what we need to treat and to spare as much as we can of the normal organs outside to minimize the side effects and to allow us to deliver higher dose of radiation to the target area to get maximum pain control, Helen. But to treat a hip, a patient will, will focus on the pain, but the radiation will have four jobs. Number one, the radiotherapy will prevent further bone deterioration in the area we treat, so preventing bone deterioration in the area we treat. Number two, it can heal some of the damage caused by the cancer. Number three, over time, it can strengthen the bone. Number four, it can work as a good pain control measure. So pain is really number four, but for the public, it's number one because it hurts. But we help in more you know, there is more role. Pain control, you can take tablets, uh, palliative care or symptoms control in Ireland, and pain specialists are, are magnificent. I mean, when I started in Dublin in the late 80s, there was only one palliative care a stroke symptom control consultant in the Republic, in the country. And he was based in Harrow's Cross. Now, in every single hospital, there is three or four specialists. So you can go to a specialist in pain control, symptom control to sort out your pain. You don't actually need me as a person. But we help in more way than pain. We are actually treating what's causing the pain. We are treating, recovering, you know, reducing the risk of pathological bone fractures. 
eliminating further bone deterioration, it has far bigger role than pain control. That's all important, isn't it? I think you've explained radiotherapy so that people do understand. I think you've, you've also explained the adjuvant aspect of, you know, radiotherapy following surgery, which is really good. So it's an additional treatment. And the whole side effect profile, looking at the different areas you treat, and you've explained it so well. And I think finally, in terms of the management of those who are in pain and what you can do for those in partnership or collectively with pain control specialists and palliative care teams is phenomenal. I have to say something to Osama because I've heard lovely comments about Osama in my community work. And, you know, it's very different now talking and meeting people during COVID-19 with our masks on and with our gloves and half our faces covered up with the masks. But one lovely comment I had, Osama, was you moved way back your two meter distance with a lovely patient I would see in the community. And you took your mask down a little bit. And to remind the patient behind the mask, there is a face, a lovely face and a smiling face who's still caring for the patients because the patient can't always see the face now during COVID-19. And and I thought that was lovely because I know myself, you know, working in uh, work in the community one day a week. It's very hard for the patients to know what your expressions are like on your face or to read the face of the person that's treating them. So I must say, I thought that was lovely. Uh, patients to me is, is, is friends. It's, you know, when I come to, when I get up in the morning, Bernie, I'm actually not coming to work. It's my golfing or my tennis. I don't do anything else. So I enjoy it. And I always take off my mask uh, at a distance. I say, that's what I look like put my hands up, then put the mask again. You treat people with respect and, you know, uh, I, I take them as friends. I don't classify what I do as work, really. I enjoy it. Before we leave, what really the public need to be reassured of is at the state or at the National Cancer Control Program has invested very, very, very heavily in, you know, funding the healthcare in Ireland, the, the cancer services, the clinical trials, the in radiotherapy, new machines, new techniques. Everything is novel. We're able to do better for people. We're are able to treat the tumors to higher doses. There is a lot of sparing of normal organs. Toxicity is getting less and less and less. The differential is more between killing the tumor and controlling things and sparing side effects. We are doing better for people, no questions about it. But the main advances really are also in medical oncology. The outcome, if you get melanoma, even stage four and you are 40, you can see grandchildren. So it's magnificent. Thank you so much, Osama. At this point, we'll bring in Professor Derek Parr, who is a consultant medical oncologist in Cork University Hospital. So we now know what a radiation oncologist does. Derek, when will a patient meet a medical oncologist on their melanoma journey? Sure. Well, I have the privilege of seeing many patients and how patients come to see me would be usually through a referral pathway. For example, in melanoma, there is a meeting that we have either face-to-face or virtual, I guess mostly virtual these days. The meeting would discuss patients who have been diagnosed with melanoma. Patients who've been diagnosed with melanoma are usually brought to the meeting by either a dermatologist or a surgeon, usually a plastic surgeon. And if at our multidisciplinary meeting, which would include an oncologist, oncologists, surgeons, radiation oncologists, pathologists, radiologists, etc. All of these specialties that deal with the diagnosis and management of, in this case, melanoma. If we feel as a group 
that the patient needs drug treatment for their melanoma, well, then they would be referred to me through that forum. Very rarely, I would see patients through another forum, such as directly from a GP or from a specialist who, for example, has discovered the melanoma by fluke. If the patient is having a procedure, surgical procedure or biopsy done for another reason, and melanoma comes back by coincidence. But that would be the minority of patients. The majority would come through this forum or a multidisciplinary meeting, an MDM. So Derry, can I just ask then, so you say that uh, patients come to you when they need treatment. So what kind of treatments would patients need for melanoma? So the different, you know, whether it was early stage or late stage, we'd love to hear a bit more about the treatments. I mean, again, I'm privileged enough to work in this area, which is now full of treatments for, for melanoma, whereas historically like as recently as eight or nine years ago, the treatments that someone like me had to offer patients with melanoma were not very effective and were very few. So today, nothing could be further from the truth. So most patients that I would see, unfortunately, have advanced disease. So there's about maybe 14, 1500 patients per year who are diagnosed with melanoma in Ireland every year from the National Cancer Registry data. And I would say about maybe 10, 15% of all of those patients would have advanced disease at diagnosis. That is an area that has been incredibly fertile in research and incredibly successful in clinical trials in the last five to six years for drug treatment for melanoma. This drug treatment includes two main areas. One is immunotherapy, which is the buzz area really in cancer drug treatment for a variety of different diseases, but melanoma led the way. So these are injections that are given into a vein by an infusion that would go in over a few hours every month, every six weeks, for example, sometimes for years. And these drugs stimulate the immune system to fight the melanoma and have been very successful. And then there are tablets that are suitable for genetically targeted treatment in about 30% approximately of patients with with melanoma advanced. So these tablets target specific genetic changes and uh, these are given sometimes for years and are well tolerated and successful in a significant percentage of patients. So that's for advanced disease. And then sometimes remarkably in advanced disease, patients can have surgery. They could have radiation therapy as well in very specific situations. So in more recent times for earlier stage disease, Stage three disease, if a patient has some positive lymph nodes in their neck or in their armpit, the axilla or in their groin, um, after the primary melanoma has been removed, wherever that may be, the leg, the arm, the abdomen, the back, um, if the disease has spread to lymph nodes, that's called stage three disease. And historically, somebody like me to get involved in stage three disease wasn't really done a huge amount and the treatment wasn't really successful. But now the drugs that I have just spoken about for advanced disease have been shown to be very efficacious in stage three disease. So we give these drugs either immunotherapy or the targeted therapy tablets for up to a year when patients have had surgery for stage three disease and the disease has spread to the lymph nodes. And in stage one and two disease, the disease hasn't spread to the lymph node. It's treated and thankfully invariably cured with surgery alone. There's no real role for drug treatment in stage one or two disease. So I now have a role to play very significantly in stage four disease. 
and stage three disease very recently. And oncologists like me would have a, a big role to play in many patients with stage three disease using the drugs that I described. Derek, can I just ask you there, um, so you said stage three probably invades into the lymph nodes, but what is stage four? So stage four is when the disease has invaded into the lymph nodes, but it's gone beyond the lymph nodes into areas in the body that are remote from where the melanoma was and where the lymph nodes were. So for example, if the disease spread to a vital organ, like the lungs, the liver, brain, bone, or lymph nodes that are further away from where the close lymph nodes to the disease are, so-called non-regional lymph nodes. So melanoma, as is any cancer, and in infection, would drain to regional lymph nodes. So for example, if you have an abscess in your tooth, you might get a swollen lymph node in your neck. You don't get it in your groin you would get it in your neck because that's a regional lymph node that drains infection away and helps fight infection. It's the same with cancer. If you had melanoma in your leg and if it's going to spread, it would spread to lymph nodes in your groin, not in your neck. So if it does spread to lymph nodes in the groin, that's called stage three. But God forbid, if, if a lymph node popped up in your neck or in your armpit, the axilla, that would have to be called stage four because they're non-regional lymph nodes. So stage four really is spread to non-regional lymph nodes or to the vital organs. And what you said there, Derek, uh, that there are treatments, though, for the stage four and the stage three. And I think you referred to them as the immunotherapies. Could you tell us how immunotherapy would, would differ from chemotherapy or other treatments? And are there side effects to these immunotherapies? So historically, chemotherapy was used to treat melanoma, but now that's very, very uncommon is chemotherapy would be used for melanoma because to be very simple about it, it doesn't work. It took many years to discover that. But now we have these drugs, either the targeted therapy tablets that I spoke about or the ones you mentioned, the immunotherapy. So these drugs exploit the role of the immune system in cancer. So it's been discovered that your immune system attacks foreign substances in your body, like cancer, which is foreign. It's not normal. And in some people, the immune system can control the disease or can make it be very indolent or non-aggressive for years sometimes through doing nothing. But that's not in everyone. In the vast majority of patients, the cancer can overcome the immune system and therefore your immune system needs a kickstart. It needs to be turned on or else it's not going to activate and move. So these drugs, these immunotherapy drugs can turn on your immune system can excite cells called T cells. These are part of your white blood cells, which increase your immunity. So it turns these on. It can stop the cancer in its tracks, can stop it growing and can make it basically shut down and control it for many years. Not in everyone, unfortunately, but in significant percentages of patients. And I think that's part of the challenge. Why is it not in everyone? I think it's probably got to do with the fact that everybody's immune system is different. And some people are very receptive to immune stimulation with these drugs and some aren't. So in advanced disease, these drugs have been shown to be incredibly effective in an awful lot of patients. 10 years after receiving a drug, 20% of patients can be alive and doing well 10 years later, whereas that was pretty much zero 10 years ago. Now we have better drugs. We have other newer drugs. And so far, the data that we have with these drugs is around 40% of patients can be doing well at five years. 
And sometimes if you combine these drugs together, 52% of patients can be doing very well at five years. Can I just ask, do you mean like people with maybe like you called it a stage three or a stage four, that they could be alive in five years? Yeah, no, this is all stage, this is stage four. So, I mean, this is, it's really incredible. Melanoma has led the way with these immunotherapy drugs. So again, I wish that was everyone, but 52% at five years is a lot better than zero at five years in the last decade. So, I mean, I've a lot of experience at using these drugs. I've had the pleasure of using these drugs for years now on clinical trials initially, and in the last four or five years, at least off the clinical trials. And I've seen patients who have disease control for five years and longer using these immunotherapy drugs. And it's, it's really quite amazing to see patients doing so well on no treatment. We would usually give these drugs for about two years. And if the disease is stable and the patient is well at two years, well, then you know, we would stop the treatment invariably. And then patients would continue on follow up with me. Many patients, the percentages I mentioned, are doing very well. And it's not just with the immunotherapy, it's with the targeted therapy drugs as well. Does every stage four patient um, receive target therapies then? Or how do you know which patients can have this targeted therapy or not? So that's a very good question. That's a huge challenge. That's a huge challenge to know what drugs should you give to what patients with stage four disease? Do you give the immunotherapy that I spoke about? Or do you give the targeted therapy that targets a mutation in a gene called BRAF? So uh, in and around 30, maybe 35% of patients are suitable for that. But usually skin melanomas, which is the majority of melanomas, uh, in and around 30% of Irish patients are suitable for targeted therapy, the tablets I'm alluding to. So the results of these are equally as effective as the immunotherapy, which begs the question that you asked, why would you give the tablets in preference to the immunotherapy? Why would you give one over the other? Should you give both together? All of these things are now being studied, sequencing studies. So starting with immunotherapy, and if that doesn't work, followed with the targeted therapy or the other way around. And then there are studies looking at combining everything together, which have yet to be fully reported. So nobody knows the right answer to these questions. And I often tell patients that this is a good problem to have because at least we have multiple options now, whereas historically with chemotherapy and other rather crude immunotherapy many years ago, the results were very poor and really the options were very poor. So now in at least 30% of patients, we have the options of both the types of treatment I spoke about. And in 70% of patients, the tablets won't be an option, but the immunotherapy most definitely is. And there's different types of immunotherapy that I mentioned, single agent drugs or combination of immunotherapy drugs. With those immunotherapies, are there side effects or with the targeted therapies, are there side effects? I know you said that people can be on them for a long time. Um, Just wondering about what kind of side effects would they get if there are side effects? So that's another very good question. That's almost like a whole other talk is what about the side effects and the tolerance and the, you know, the most important thing for somebody like me to bear in mind is, it sounds very obvious, but it really is the most important thing is the quality of life of the patient. There's no point in giving somebody a treatment that's toxic and is going to make somebody miserable if they're only being looked upon as a figure and a point on a survival curve. Clearly that's not the case, but there are side effects. If you give combination immunotherapy, this is the most effective immunotherapy treatment known, but it's also the most toxic. So it's a double-edged sword. 
So in and around two thirds of patients may develop significant side effects. And these side effects, to be very general about it, are because of stimulation of the immune system. If somebody has a very abnormal immune system, it might attack their joints and they can develop rheumatoid arthritis. Some people have inflammatory bowel disease, colitis, and some people have psoriasis and dermatitis and lupus. These are all autoimmune conditions. These immunotherapy drugs may cause these autoimmune conditions like arthritis. I could cause a patient to get arthritis. The list goes on. So a a significant percentage of patients will develop these side effects. In the vast majority, it's very manageable with steroids and other drugs that can dampen down the immune system uh, a little bit. But in a small percentage of patients, these toxicities can be very significant and they can result in the drugs being stopped. So that's obviously overall not a good thing. But just one point worth noting is that there is some provocative science and publications saying that if you get big immune toxicity from these drugs, that may actually be a good thing for the cancer. And even though the drugs are stopped, you may still develop a long-term benefit with the percentages I spoke about earlier, even though the drugs are stopped. So that's very interesting. Not that you want people to have side effects, but it's just, it's an important point worth noting. And of course, people who are listening to this may say, well, God, if I don't get side effects, does that mean it's not being very efficacious? That doesn't follow. So there's not a logic to say that. I've known many patients over the years who've had minimal side effects. And if that logic was true, they shouldn't be doing as well as they are. But it doesn't mean if you don't get side effects, you're not going to do well. So in 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 summary, they're the main side effects. Anywhere in your body can get inflamed. You can get tired because your thyroid function is inflamed. You can develop diabetes. You can develop skin problems, bowel problems, lung problems. Anywhere in your body can get inflamed from immunotherapy. So the side effects with the tablets are a little different. They don't really affect the immune system much, certainly not to the degree that the immunotherapy does. But these, they have very specific side effects as well, the tablets. So the tablets can cause sweats. They can cause fevers and chills. And, you know, the automatic assumption is this is infection. In the majority of cases, it isn't. It's just the way the tablets work. You can take some paracetamol or ibuprofen or something to calm that down. Joint pains, tummy aches, skin dryness and itchiness. And there are very specific side effects with these tablets that are different to the immunotherapy. But again, these tablets are licensed. They're safe. They're approved all over the world. I think it's probably fair to say the side effects are a little bit less with the tablets than the immunotherapy. Um, And they're usually very manageable. I think most patients that I have with these tablets, I mean, there's obviously always going to be a few people who just, it's not for them. Uh, We can't predict side effects, by the way, before giving the treatment. That's that's the kind of holy grail. I wish we could do that because we wouldn't put people through side effects otherwise. It must be really difficult, Derek. I was just listening to what you were saying there in terms of side effects and somebody coming back to you again and again, maybe with quite severe side effects. Um, is that another conversation to have? You know, if you're going to continue with the drug and the side effects are quite severe, what happens there? Well, that you're right. That is a difficult conversation. I mean, I suppose my responsibility and I think any doctor and nurse's responsibility first and foremost is to do no harm. So obviously, if you're causing harm to somebody to a significant degree, albeit unintentionally with these drugs, well, then you just have to stop. 
there's no point, as I mentioned, in making people miserable um, just to keep a drug going when clearly, you know, you're having a very bad impact on somebody's physical and mental well-being. So, you know, there, there is, um, as I mentioned, in 30% of people, the two options. And then in patients who do have side effects from the immunotherapy, if they're not severe enough, I mean, we grade side effects very objectively using a, a specific scale. So this isn't just a subjective thing. We have grading systems that are internationally accepted. There is a possibility to re-challenge patients with these drugs after a break or after the toxicity has you know, lessened or abated after an interval. So that's a possibility. But if the side effect is such that it's called grade four, which essentially is a hospital admission uh, due to side effects, Really, in most cases, there's no option but to stop the drug permanently because there's a risk to someone's life from side effects. That's rare, but it does happen. And you're right, it is a difficult conversation. And just one last thing, Derek, because they are so new and they're so different side effects. Are there any patient support programs out there for patients on these new treatments, like on the immunotherapies and that? Or where do they go if they get a side effect? Would they go to their GP? Would they come to yourselves? Or what would they do? Obviously, I think if somebody has side effects from treatment that I've given them or any of my colleagues, you know, you need to come back to us. Patients will be given phone numbers to call and access to the hospital and hopefully avoiding accident and emergencies and so on. And it's really back to the oncologist first. And, you know, there are um, information packs that we give patients on how to look out for side effects. So that's another uh, source. But in terms of patient groups, I'm not aware really of any specific group. It's possibly a, a, a good a good thing to um, to look into is providing patient support groups for immunotherapy toxicity because I think these drugs. I mean, I'm talking here about melanoma, but these drugs are now ubiquitous in cancer treatment. Derek, do you tap into like services and people like psycho oncologists and counselors and? Sure. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, we could always do it more, but we do. So I think any hospital that treats sufficient volume of cancer should have liaison psychiatry or psycho-oncology service, because I think something that's been very under, poorly understood historically is the, you know, mental impact of cancer and the debilitating mental impact sometimes of cancer treatment on patients. And sometimes we forget that in busy clinics. So there is a psycho-oncology service professionals to talk about these issues grief reactions to cancer, stress reactions to cancer and its treatment and family implications and so on. So that's one service. Other services that we get involved, and I think sometimes there's a traditional perception when I say this that, you know, the outcome is poor, but palliative care services. So palliative care historically was associated with death and dying. Whereas now palliative care, I mean, obviously there is an element of this with palliative care services of, of dying and end of life care, but an awful lot of palliative care services now support patients with advanced cancer or indeed early stage cancer who are significantly debilitated by the disease or by the treatment. So that's another source of support for patients in the community. That's great. It's great to mention palliative because you're right, people kind of Think of palliative as the end of life when it's not. It's, you know, so much more. How do you think we're doing in Ireland with melanoma? So I think we're doing very well. I think thanks to increased education in the population, I think the government and organizations like yourselves have done a good job in getting out in the media and in the lay press the importance of protecting yourself from the sun. So that's clearly helped to diagnose melanoma earlier 
and to prevent melanoma in the first place. I mean, the most important thing about treating cancer is preventing the cancer. That's the most important, the most effective treatment that we have. If you were to ask me the three most important treatments for melanoma, I would say prevention, prevention, prevention. So it's much better to prevent it rather than get it, obviously. But also, I think more melanomas are being picked up earlier. The NCCP, the National Cancer Control Program, have got the word out there in terms of rapid access referral clinics. So there are forms on the internet that all GPs will know about. So I think thanks to these rapid access clinics, we're getting more and more patients diagnosed with earlier stage disease, which is clearly better than later stage disease, despite all the drug treatments that I've described, which have really changed later stage disease. But clearly, it's still way better never to get it at all through primary prevention or if the disease is going to happen for it to be earlier stage disease. So that's a nice roundup, Derek. And I love what you said there about we're seeing more stage one and stage two melanoma cancers, which is actually encouraging in many, many ways, isn't it? I also like in your treatment plan, prevention, 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 far better. Um, and that's certainly a message we try to get out there. Derek, thank you for your time. It's been so valuable. The strong message here is prevention, prevention, prevention. So that's all for this week. We would like to say a big thank you to our guests, our sponsors Novartis, and of course to you for listening in. This podcast comes out fortnightly, so make sure to like and subscribe and tune in next time to continue on this journey with us, learning and understanding more about melanoma. Until then, here's a sneak peek of next week's episode. I never would have looked at that and thought it was melanoma. It was literally just that I knew it wasn't normal for me. So I wish I had maybe prepared myself a little bit more. Uh, so like if you have a mole removed, it's obviously serious enough for them to remove it for some reason. So I probably should have been a bit more on my guard um, because I, I was really gutted when I got the call actually to say it was melanoma.